If you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 12? Acts, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback black Bible underneath the chair in front of you or underneath you. If you're using that Bible, we're going to be on page 920 together this morning. I'm not sure if you've noticed it or not yet, but for the last month or so, we've been working really hard to make it perfectly clear who we are and what we believe God has called us into. We are a family of authentic Christ followers who exist to love God and love people. That's who we are, and that's what we believe that God has called us into. And as we've begun this new year in an effort to step into the new year on the right foot, all month long we've been looking at what it means to be authentic Christ followers. We've been talking about how we live as disciples of Jesus, and as we've done that, we've also introduced you to our discipleship model here on the screens there. there We've introduced you to this, and the reason we've done that is each week we want to take some time to talk about the four essential aspects of discipleship that are at the center of this model. The Word of God, community, prayer, and mission. You see, we are a family of authentic Christ followers who exist to love God and love people. But the way we do that, the way we live out our vision statement is by living out those four essential aspects of discipleship. We do that by being grounded in the word of God. We do that by being about our community. We do that by being powered by prayer. We do that by being unified in the mission. You see, each one of these four essential aspects of discipleship helps to lead us as a church to live out our vision for what we believe God has called us to be and do. And and so that's what we've been talking about all month long. We started back the first week of January by looking at the centrality of the word of God in our lives. And, And you'll remember we just spent the entire sermon on one verse, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And the way we remember him is by being in the Word. And then last week, Pastor Ben did a great job of working to help us see the importance of living in authentic Christian community, where we remember that Christian community is full of sinners who've been saved by Jesus. And when we remember that, we're able to be open and honest with one another. We're able to work through struggles and and difficulties and encourage and equip one another. And now today, we're going to talk about prayer. You hear me say this all the time, and I absolutely believe it's true. If we want to see anything of eternal value come about by what we're doing here, we have to pray. It's that important. So much so that I I genuinely believe the Lord has been putting this in front of us on purpose over the last few months. You see, without any kind of intentional planning, this is now the third sermon in as many months where we have taken the entire service to focus completely on prayer. Now, I am not saying that we don't plan out our messages. We absolutely do. But I didn't plan to have three months in a row where every month we zoom in and we look at how essential and inescapable our need to pray is. And yet we have. Like I said, I think God is putting this in front of us. He wants us to see how important this is. It started with with Ricky Lightkep um, back in in November, I don't know if you remember, but um, he opened up Luke chapter 11, in the beginning of Luke chapter 11, where Jesus' disciples come to him and say, hey, teach us to pray. 
And then during Advent, we looked at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, where we found that we can experience the peace of God in our lives when we just take everything to him in prayer. And now here we are talking about prayer as part of our discipleship together. I don't think this is an accident. I really genuinely believe that the Lord is putting this in front of us because we need this. Now, the last couple of messages that we've looked at have been focused primarily on prayer in your personal life, like your, your just daily devotional life, praying, talking to God, coming to him with your requests, depending on him. Today, I want to spend some time talking about our corporate life. I want to talk about how we pray together as a church. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at an example from the early church. We're going to look at the majority of Acts chapter 12, and, and what we're going to see is this episode that happened in the early church in about 44 AD. And as we look at this, what we're going to see is that the gospel advances when the church earnestly prays. And that's our main idea for today. As we look at Acts chapter 12, what we're going to see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ advances not when we're winsome in our approach, not when we're forceful in our methods, not when we're dedicated to our doctrine. The gospel of Jesus Christ advances when the church gets together and they get on their knees and they humbly plead before God. That's what we're seeing here. That's when the gospel advances. The gospel advances when the church earnestly prays. So with that in mind, let's look at Acts chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 24. The Bible says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some men who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. But they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the soldiers and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that the grass withers, that the flower falls, that the word of the Lord remains forever, and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, and we We thank you for this account that has been preserved for us. As we look at this account, as we examine what it teaches us about praying, would you help us to see our need to depend on you? Would you help us to fight the temptation individually and collectively as a church to plan and and come up with strategies and do all of these things on our own? And would you help us to instead depend completely on you to lead us? And as we do, would you grow our faith? Would you help us to make an impact in this community? Would you do amazing things that make us marvel? We love you, Lord. We look forward to seeing how you are going to work. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. I'm curious, have you ever played the what-if game? Uh, You you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, what if you could go on vacation for free anywhere in the world? Where would you go? Or what if you finally unloaded on that boss or that coworker that you cannot stand? How good would that feel? What if, what if, you could fly like Superman. How freeing would that be? Hey, students, what if we canceled a day of school because a cold front moved through South Alabama? (laughs) Or all of us? What if we won the lottery? We've all played the game before, right? Like we've We've planned out the ways that we would spend that $200 million you'd win if you won the lottery, even though you never actually play the lottery. I think we've all played the what-if game before. Well, today, as we look at Acts chapter 12, I don't want us to play a game, but I do want us to earnestly ask the question, what if? What if we prayed like that? What if we, in the face of the impossible, prayed earnestly? What if we trusted God like we see Peter trusting God? What if we were persistent in prayer, like we see the early church here in Acts 12? How would God amaze us? What if we prayed? 
That's the question I, I think we need to consider as we look at these verses together. Because I believe that this passage is teaching us that the gospel advances when the church earnestly prays. So, so what have we earnestly prayed? How might God move? That's, that's the question I want you to consider today and tomorrow and every day this week. Now, whenever you're reading through scripture, it's important to know the context into which you're reading. If you've been following along the church's reading plan, then you've read through a good chunk of the book of Acts already this month. But as a recap, uh, following the murder of the deacon Stephen, as he shared the gospel back in Acts chapter 7, a great persecution has broken out against the church in Jerusalem. So much so that the church scattered into the surrounding regions and they're sharing the gospel as they go. Saul was at the center of that persecution, but after his conversion on the road to Damascus, things seemed to calm down for a while for the early church. In fact, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 tells us that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And then we read in chapters 10 and 11 how the gospel goes from just the Jews to the Jews and the Gentiles. Pastor Ben talked a little bit about this last week. And, and as the church continued to grow and live the mission that Jesus had given them after his resurrection, before his ascension. But then we come into chapter 12. Things have been going well for a while, but a new wave of persecution seems to break out. And this time, it's a political persecution. This time it's Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who we know from the stories of Jesus' birth. Now, if we want to understand what's going on here, it's helpful to understand Agrippa a little bit. He, he was raised over in Rome. Like as a child, he was close friends with the son of Emperor Tiberius, the, the future Emperor Claudius, and he also had really close connections with another future emperor named Caligula. Herod Agrippa is in power here in Acts chapter 12 because Emperor Caligula had installed him there, giving him the territories that had belonged to his uncles, Philip and Antipas. And then Caligula's successor, Agrippa's childhood BFF, Emperor Claudius, expanded those territories to include Judea and Samaria, giving him all the lands that his grandfather had controlled. I tell you that because the reality is, while the emperor allowed him to use the title of king, the reality is Agrippa is more politician than king. And because he's more politician than king, he needed to gain and keep the favor of the Jewish people. So it makes sense that he went after the enemies of the Jewish elite. It makes sense that he went after the leaders of the early church. In verses 1 through 3, we, we see this. We see how King Herod began to attack the church. He arrested and executed the apostle James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. This was a deliberate attempt to destroy the church by systematically attacking its leaders and taking them out. And when he saw that this made the Jewish people happy, he went and arrested Peter. And verse 3 concludes by telling us that this happened during the days of unleavened bread. Now, th this is a detail we should make note of because it helps to explain why Peter wasn't just executed right away. This is happening during Passover, and we've seen this before, right? 
Like you'll remember that Jesus was arrested and when he was arrested, they rushed his trial. They rushed his crucifixion to make sure all of it was done before the Passover. But with Peter, it seems they're willing to wait. And so we read in verse four, when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people. That bring him out to the people, by the way, is is kind of euphemism for bring him out for public execution. That's what's happening here. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter's been in jail, right? He's been in jail a couple of times. And and in fact, the last time he was in jail, back in Acts chapter 5, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord came and brought him out of jail. It seems Peter has a reputation for midnight escapes from prison, so it makes sense that they're determined to keep that from happening again. They put him in a maximum security stall. They've got four squads of four soldiers each guarding him around the clock to make sure he stays put before they bring him out after Passover for execution. That's the situation that this whole account begins with. Things are bad. They're really bad, but I want you to look at how the church responds here. Take a look at verse 5. The Bible says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in prison, and the church's response is to pray. Now, Now put yourself in their shoes for a moment. How would you respond? Play the what if game right here with the text. What if this were us? What if one of our deacons, maybe it's Hal, I just saw you there, Brother Hal. Maybe maybe it's Dallas, maybe it's Jason. What if one of them is murdered for sharing the gospel while he's at work? And then a few days later, a mob shows up here at the church. They drag me out of the office and they kill me. And then not long after that, the police come knocking. They arrest Pastor Ben. They haul him off to prison to execute him. How would we respond? Now, I know that there's like a 0.0000001% chance of that scenario actually happening but sometimes it's helpful to play the what-if game. Because while we may not face scenarios like that, we do face challenges. We do face obstacles. We do encounter things that make living out the mission that God has set before us difficult and sometimes even scary. And when we encounter things like that, how do we respond? I think our natural inclination is to plan. I know mine is. I'm a planner. I like to have everything planned out. We try to figure out workarounds. We try to figure out what to do. I think our first response is to outline a strategy. If we're being honest, I think we'd confess that most of the time prayer is not where we begin. But look at what the early church did one more time. Verse 5 says that earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church prayed. In the face of insurmountable odds, they prayed. And they prayed earnestly. Now, you guys know that I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to Bible words. And that word earnest there in verse 5 is a word worth nerding out over. 
In, in fact, if you write in your Bibles, go ahead and underline or circle or highlight that word earnest. In the Greek, that word is ektenos. It means eagerly, fervently, without ceasing. But if we truly want to understand what this word means right here, we can actually be helped by looking at where it's used elsewhere, especially if we look at where it's used elsewhere by the same author. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke, and the only other place that he ever used this exact same word is back in Luke chapter 22 to describe the way that Jesus prayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So really quick, let's flip back to Luke chapter 22. Because it seems like the church is praying the way that Jesus prayed. And, and if that's the case, then we need to ask the question, how did Jesus pray? So take a look with me. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 39. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 882. The Bible says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, here's our word, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, as Jesus is praying there in the garden, what do we see about this earnest prayer? It's raw, right? It's honest. Jesus knew what he was about to face there as he's headed to the cross. He knew it was going to be hard. And in a moment of this honest and raw prayer with the Father, he says there in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Like, can you imagine how just transparent he's being with the Father as he's praying right there? Jesus asked for a different path. He was honest with the Father. He pleaded with God. He said, if you're willing, take this away. What I'm looking at, it's hard. What I'm looking at, it's going to be painful. It's overwhelming to me. Can you see it? Can you see how Jesus' prayer was this honest, raw, pleading before God? But Jesus didn't stop with, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, did he? No, he continued and he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus prays, he openly and honestly pleads with God, and, and yet at the same time, his prayer is completely surrendered to the will of God. Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm surrendering it all to you. You're in charge. That's how he prayed. And then we're told how an angel of the Lord came to him and strengthened him. I, I can imagine the angel is there and he's comforting him and he's encouraging him. And, and then we see that word there in verse 44. 
Jesus is in agony. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. After being strengthened, he looked, and and everything before him looked just as hard. Right? Like, it, it didn't get any easier there. So he responds by praying harder. He prayed more earnestly. Now, now really quick, if, 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 if he's praying more earnestly, that means that the prayer that came before, that was earnest prayer as well. So do you see the picture that this is giving us? Jesus prayed earnestly. He took everything to the Father. He was in agony, and he took it all to him. He laid it down before him, and yet, even as he laid it out before the Father, he was surrendering to the Father's will. And it's that same kind of prayer that we see in the church over in Acts chapter 12. That's how the church prayed. What if we prayed like that? What if we looked at the challenges that lie ahead, the hurdles that seem both overwhelming and impossible, and we prayed, surrendered to the Father's will, we just handed it over to him. And what if we knew each other well enough that we could pray for our brothers and sisters? Like, like what if we, we actually prayed for one another? Because the reality is there are a lot of things going on in the lives of the members of this church family. Like, I know we're not like a mega church, but, but if you can think of it, it's probably happening in this church right now. And I'm saying probably to protect identities. It is happening. What if we knew one another enough that we actually prayed for one another and we prayed these raw, honest, passionate prayers that were completely surrendered to the will of God? How might God amaze us? As a church family, what we're seeing here is is that we need to pray earnestly. We need to pray for the mission. We need to pray for our community. We need to pray for our families. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray earnestly. That's what the early church did. And I want you to see what happened when they did. As we keep reading this account, we read of how on the night before Herod was going to bring Peter out to execute him, an angel of the Lord came to set him free. But Peter was asleep. He's been in prison for several days now. He knows he's facing his own execution, and he's asleep. He's that confident about his future that he's able to just go to sleep. Now, (laughs) I've never been in prison myself, but I did go through SEER school. SEER school stands for Survive, Evade, Resist, Escape. SEER school is the course that U.S. military service members get sent to to learn how to survive if you get shot down and how to resist if you become a prisoner of war. And part of SEER school is they take you out into the field for a week and the first couple of days is like ultimate hide-and-go-seek. It's actually a lot of fun, but then you get captured and you become a prisoner of war and that part is maybe the worst training I have ever gone through in my entire life. I can remember sitting in my little tiny cell, cold and shivering, and not asleep, terrified of the moment they come and grab me and pull me out to rough me up. And I'm using rough me up lightly here because you have to learn how to resist being tortured. 
And that was training. The entire time, even when they were beating me up, I knew they're not going to do any permanent damage. This is training. It was training, and I didn't sleep. Certainly not on the level that Peter is sleeping here. I knew it was training. I didn't sleep, but Peter is in a real prison. He doesn't have any constitutional rights. He's facing his own execution, and yet he rests confident in the fact that God is at work. And he goes to sleep. What if as we prayed, we kept that in mind? What if we just rested in God's faithfulness? That's totally a side note. I just, I can't get over the fact that he fell asleep there. So anyway, Peter's sleeping in prison, and and on the night before they're about to bring him out and execute him, an angel of the Lord comes, and Peter's out so cold that this angel shows up in the prison cell. Peter is chained between two Roman guards, right? He's got chain on this hand going to the Roman guard, chain on this hand going to the Roman guard. He is out cold. An angel shows up. The angel lights up the whole room, and still Peter is asleep. And so the angel knocks him with a stick or something. I don't know what he kicked him with. Maybe he just, wake up, right? But either way... He tells Peter to wake up. He tells him to get up. The chains fall off his arms. He tells Peter to get dressed. Peter gets dressed. He starts walking out of the prison. As they're walking out of the prison, the guards are apparently still out cold. And then the gate just opens for itself, like like in Star Wars or something, except it's the Lord working, right? So maybe that's not a good reference to use, right? And it's only once Peter is well outside of the prison that Peter comes to himself and he realizes that this isn't a dream. He's free. And so what does Peter do? He goes to his church family. Take a look at verse 12. The Bible says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Peter gets out of jail, and he goes to Mark's mom's house. Apparently, Mark's mom had a house big enough that the church was able to gather together, and and they're there together at the house, and they're praying. And by the way, the implication of the text is that they're praying for Peter. It's been several days, and they're still praying. They haven't given up hope. Their prayer was persistent, and that's something we ought to recognize as a church. When we pray earnestly, we we don't pray earnestly for 30 minutes at at the church on a Sunday and then go back and sit down and just sit back and watch God at work. We keep on praying. It's a constant thing. The church continued to pray, and it's the same thing for us. Our prayer shouldn't be restricted to once a month during first priority or once a quarter during family prayer night. As a church family, we need to pray persistently. What if we did that? How might God amaze us? This account of Peter's escape continues, and as it does, that's what happened. The church was amazed by God. Take a look there, starting at verse 13. The Bible tells us, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. 
Now, I don't know about y'all, but I, I read that, and that's, that's just funny to me, right? Like, Peter comes up to the gate. He knocks on the door. The girl runs out. She recognizes it's Peter's voice. And in her excitement, instead of just opening the gate and letting Peter come in, remember, he's just escaped from prison, so people are probably looking for him. He's probably about to die, right, if they catch him. What does the little girl do? She runs inside. Hey, guys, Peter's here. And even though they're in there and they're earnestly and persistently praying that Peter would be set free from prison, even as they're pleading before God together for several days when God answers their prayers in that moment, they don't believe it. Did, Did you see that? Can we just take a moment to stop and marvel at that? Can we just marvel at the reality that our Bible shows us this honest picture of how conflicted even the most authentic Christ followers can be? It shows us how we'll go to the Lord and we'll we'll make these bold prayer requests. It shows us how we'll plead with God persistently and at the same time that we're pleading with God, we'll doubt that he's even able to do it. These guys didn't believe. And yet there's grace for that. Look at verse 15. Luke records that they said to her, you are out of your mind. Like there's no way, it's not possible. You're imagining things and And she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Like, best case scenario, in their minds, Peter's guardian angel, who Jewish people in the first century believed guardian angels existed and that they looked like the person that they guarded. That's not really addressed here, but but the idea is, best case scenario, it's his guardian angel who's come to them. There's no chance that God has actually answered their prayer by releasing Peter from prison. And again, this should be encouraging to us because I know that a lot of us, if we're honest, we can admit we've prayed these big prayers. We've asked for these things that seem impossible. We've asked earnestly. We've asked persistently. And yet in the middle of our asking, in the middle of our pleading before God, we've doubted that he's able to do it. And what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 12 is that on full display. And listen, you know the reaction's not completely under. Un- unacceptable. It's not completely wrong for us. After all, think about where they're at. Like James was arrested and executed. Certainly they prayed for him. Surely they prayed for James, but God didn't rescue James, and we're not even told why. And so now Peter's been arrested. What do they expect to happen? Like on a human level, their doubt doesn't seem unreasonable. It makes sense that even as they pleaded with God, they weren't completely sure it was possible. Yet in the middle of that doubt, God is gracious to them. In the middle of their doubt, he gives them what they asked for. He sends his angel who brings Peter out of the prison. Verse 16 tells us 
that Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. This should be encouraging for us. Because God doesn't ask us to have this complete faith where we never, ever doubt. We can pray bold prayers. We can come to him even in the middle of our struggles, in the middle of our doubt. We can ask. We can wonder if he's able to do it, and we can still ask, and he will. We don't need to let our doubts keep us from praying. We can pray these big prayers. And what we're seeing here as a church family, we pray even when we doubt. That's what we're seeing right here. Now, what if we really understood that in our gut? Like, what if we understood that? How freeing would that be? How much more willing would we be to pray persistently and earnestly? This is an encouraging account of how we can pray. Because God worked the impossible, and the people were amazed, and the gospel moved forward. And quickly, that's the final thing I'd like you to note from Acts chapter 12. After Peter comes in with the the church, he tells them to quiet down. He describes how the Lord had brought them out of prison, and and he tells them to to pass the news to James, the brother of Jesus, and to some of the other apostles, and, and then he left. And the next day, it's when it's discovered that Peter's gone. A search is made. Herod comes in. He interviews the soldiers. He puts them to death because they've let this prisoner escape. That is the normal practice in that day. And then Herod, who had been actively working to destroy the church by killing its leaders, leaves town. He heads out to the coast. He goes to Caesarea. And and in his work, Antiquities, the Jewish historian Josephus, who's a contemporary of Luke's, right? So this is outside of the Bible, he records the same thing. He he tells us that he went down there in honor for some celebrations in honor of the emperor. And while he's there, both Luke and Josephus tell us um, how representatives from the city of Tyre and Sidon had came seeking some economic relief. And and when they met with Herod, Herod gives a speech and in shouts of flattery, surely meant to curry favor, they proclaim that he was a god. In that moment, the Lord struck him down. Josephus Um, records this too. He, He tells how Herod Agrippa refused to repudiate the crowd's flattery and how then he was, quote, seized with violent internal pains, was carried home and died five days later. Now, this seems like a strange account to end Peter's escape from prison with, right? Except that it shows God working to move the gospel forward. Remember, this account started by telling us how Herod was working to shut down the church. But it ends by telling us how God shut down Herod. And then in our final verse, we're reminded about the whole account's full purpose. In verse 24, we're told, but the word of God increased and multiplied. The gospel moved forward. The church grew. Herod met his end, but the gospel continued to go forward. This is what happens when the church earnestly prays. The gospel advances when the church earnestly prays. 
That's what we're seeing in this account. Regardless of what may come at us, regardless of the challenges we may face, the opposition we may encounter, the, the mission is God's. So we can go to him earnestly. We can go to him persistently. And, and as we do, even as doubts rise up, we can ask God and God will be at work. God will move and the kingdom will advance because the reality is we get to serve him, but it's his mission. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. This is his church. And the mission he's given us to accomplish, it's his mission. What if we remembered that? What if we prayed? 